Welcome to the CTO Connection podcast. I'm Peter Bell, and every week I'll be sharing an interview with a top engineering leader. Firstly, I want to thank AWS, who are our exclusive ultimate partner, and without whom we couldn't run our summits or the business. AWS offers a broad set of global cloud-based products to equip technology leaders to build better and more powerful solutions. Reach out to aws-cto-program at amazon.com if you're interested in learning more about their offerings. I'd also like to thank Code Climate, our sustaining partner. Code Climate is now offering full access to Velocity free for 45 days to the CTO Connection community. Velocity turns data from GitHub and Bitbucket into insights that improve the visibility of engineering work so that your team can stay aligned as they adapt to a distributed workflow. Check it out at codeclimate.com slash CTO Connection and use access code CTO Connection. I'd also like to thank our other sponsors, including Andela, Bugsnag, CircleCI, iTechArt, Carrot, LaunchDarkly, and Optimizely for their continued support during these difficult times. And now on with the show. Today, I'm speaking with Colton Andrus, the CEO and co-founder of Gremlin. Colton, thanks so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. So as with all of our guests, we love to get a little bit of the backstory as to what went so horribly wrong that nobody allows you to write software anymore and you have to run a team instead. So you, you started off coding at like Meridius Capital and Mindshare Technologies, and then you, you moved to Amazon and you started as a developer there or, or how did that work? Yeah. So while I was finishing my uh, college degree, I spent some time working for a company that did mortgage brokerages in 2009. So great timing there. And I worked for a company that did customer satisfaction surveys, uh, which was my first startup actually before before joining Amazon. And I was there a couple of years. I finished my degree. You know, I got some good industry experience. Um, but then it was funny. I actually turned down Amazon the first time to work for this startup in Salt Lake. And I wanted to be closer to family, closer to home. I was like, who knows if this Amazon thing is really, you know, worth it, if it's going to work out. And, you know, w- went back and had a second chance, had a second choice. Two years later said, you know, maybe we should, what would have happened if we had joined Amazon? And we packed up the family, moved to Seattle and took the plunge. Quite a change of pace. So you started there writing code and then you moved into a management role a couple years in? Yeah, my first two to three years, I was there as a as an engineer. I was focused on availability and on resilience. And so I was building these tools to do chaos engineering, where you go and you break things on purpose to find the weaknesses and fix them. And I'd done that and I had a lot of success and I had built a lot of trust with my team. And they came to me and they said, hey, we would love for you to manage a team. And I'd always said to myself, I'll wait until someone comes and asks and they feel like I'm ready. And the opportunity presented itself. And I and so I, I hopped on. What was it like managing a team at Amazon? I, I've heard that there's a reasonable amount of variability between the, the teams and the departments. Like how much input and support did you get in in kind of growing into becoming a, a people manager? Yeah, I would say this is one of the lessons learned as an engineer. It's harder than you think it is. You know, a lot of people think that moving into management is this diagonal up and to the right move, but it's really diagonal down and to the right. Like you are resetting skills, you're you're learning a whole new set of things. I think it was it was something I'm very grateful for the opportunity to have. It taught me a lot. 
it's much better to be CEO now than it was to be middle manager at Amazon. The ability to make the decisions and to know why they were made instead of being them handed to you, to make your own goals as opposed to them you know, being given to you. Absolutely. Well, I think that's one of the challenges is especially like the first kind of couple of jobs in management that most people get. You're basically responsible for your team and their well-being and their efficiency, but you seldom have much impact input on how things are done, right? You're not developing systems. You're simply making sure that your five to eight direct reports aren't miserable in the shipping code. Yeah, and we also owned making Amazon.com fast for the company, and we're coordinating across a lot of teams and a lot of different, uh, a lot of other engineering teams. Which was again, it was a great opportunity, but it dealt with. There was a lot of politics. There was a lot of who was taking credit. There was a lot of well, we don't have time to do that work. And so I guess you know, looking back, that was an extra dimension of complexity added on to just was my team happy and producing. Makes sense. And then you moved across to Netflix, but there your your title was senior software engineer. So was this more of it was more of a, a technical role again, or did you have direct reports? No, it was a it was a technical role. So after I'd done my year and a half of management at Amazon, I said, I'm done with this. I'd much rather be an engineer. And so I interviewed. In fact, I was talking to one of my my VPs uh, just this last week. And he was commenting on how they tried to get me into management two or three different times. And I, I, I did it on an interim basis while another manager was out ill, but it wasn't something I, I ever took on fully. And I really, when I went to Netflix, I wanted to just go deeper technically. I wanted to, to write code, to not deal with the politics, to just get stuff done and be able to make an impact. Now, what kind of projects were you working on when you were at Netflix? Yeah, so interestingly enough, I didn't join with a specific project in mind. And I was on the team that owned the proxy and the API gateway. And within three months, it was clear that number one, reliability was our biggest problem. It was the biggest place I could make an impact. Number two, the tooling that we had wasn't sufficient. And there was an, there was an opportunity to build better tooling. And so having taking my experience from Amazon, I was able to come in and in pretty short order, a quarter or two, go and build this new software system that let us be much more precise and fine-grained with our failure testing. And we got to roll that out. I, it, it was interesting. So I took my, my management lessons from Amazon, though, and I applied them at Netflix. I might have been an individual contributor, and I think this is a good, a good tip for any engineering technical IC out there. You can still go wield that influence to talk to directors, to talk to VPs, to find out what people's problems are, to understand what their roadmap is, and to get work done. And so while I wasn't a manager, I went and worked with all of the leadership to roll out this approach and this tooling and to get teams to do the work. And, and as I look back as CEO now, that might have been one of the unsung accomplishments is how do you get all these other teams to invest some time and effort well, the answer was it was in their benefit. You know, it saved them time in the end. That makes a lot of sense. I was speaking with Randy Schaup the other day, and he said, because he had a lot of kind of system architect, principal engineer roles, and he said what he didn't realize was he'd actually been learning to be a manager for a decade by doing that because you had the responsibility to move people in a direction without any actual authority to get them to go there. So it was very much the same thing. Uh, but now I'm guessing you have a little more authority as well as responsibility. You you founded Gremlin. What what made you decide, you know what, 
uh, Amazon, Netflix, let's just go start a new company. What, what was the thinking behind that? Yeah, well, we, we felt this pain and we saw the need for what we built at Gremlin, Chaos Engineering Tooling at Amazon. But, you know, there's a lot of things that are, exist within Amazon that maybe could be cool companies that people haven't built, but you're not really sure because it's Amazon's a unique place. But after joining Netflix and seeing that they needed something more, they were already on board culturally. They had already done some of the first steps along the path, but even they needed more. Then you see that there's this alignment of pain that people have and a solution that you can give. And that's really what drove the initial decision. I've always been entrepreneurial. I did uh, consulting in college. I've, I've worked for a couple of startups. And my intention has always been to do a company but this was an opportunity to take you know, a pain point I'd felt and lived, uh, a problem that I'd found and been part of a good solution for, and then seen it work at two of the largest software companies in the world, and then be able to go take it out to the masses. And so to me, that was really, that was the opportunity. Can we go, can we go build this for everybody? Because it worked for us. Interesting. Now, when you look at that, there are some things where you can see that a Facebook or a Netflix or an Amazon, it's the future of, of technology and everyone else is just going to get there eventually. But there are also some other problems that those kind of massive scale tech companies have that most other people are never going to have to deal with at all. How did you figure out which side of that divide the whole kind of chaos engineering was? What made you think that somebody who didn't have Netflix like traffic would still need that kind of capability. Yeah, it's been an interesting one to think about because one of my one of my favorite jokes is everyone wants to be like Amazon and Netflix. Now you have Amazon and Netflix's problems. What are you going to do with those? And while you're right that not everyone will have the same complexity, certainly Amazon, even if you just take one of its business units has a lot of complexity in it. But you know, we were able to get a lot of value from a small amount of time investment, even at the team level or at the, the director level, as opposed to needing to do it for the whole organization or the whole company. And so to me, that's indicative. You know, If it scales down, if it's something that's useful for a team and it's something that's useful for a company, it's just a question of how much do you need and where do you apply it? What were some of your kind of like formative experiences when you started to work with chaos engineering what were some of the things where you started to be like wow this is a really useful approach versus other techniques i think you even take a step back before that i had the opportunity both at amazon and netflix to be a call leader so at amazon we had 14 people on a rotation and if the website went down any of the websites went down if it was your day you were in charge of fixing it no matter what it took and there were 50, 100 people on that call, VPs, SVPs. You had to give status updates. You had to coordinate the issue. You had to fix it. And then my team owned the incident reviews that happened on a weekly basis. So I got to sit in on all of the failures. And I got to listen to all of the incident reviews. And what I saw was a huge problem. It was a huge problem in that it was very painful to the people that were involved. It was a very stressful issue while it was occurring. It was an expensive problem to the business and no one was happy when things went wrong. And so it's, I think it's fairly well known, but Amazon has a very high bar. There's a lot of high goals that we took and our goals were basically unachievable if we just continued doing the same things that we were doing day in and day out. 
And that's the point of really high goals. If you want a little peek under the cover at Amazon, an unreasonably hard goal forces you to take a different path to achieve it. And so as we looked at how do we get to the world of four nines or five nines of uptime, meaning we get 30 minutes of outage a year, maybe we get 10 minutes of outage a year. How do we accomplish that? It's not about getting people onto calls faster. It's not about fixing systems live faster. It's about preventing things from ever occurring in the first place. And so that's a different mindset. You know, it, it shifts us out of the SRE reactive world and into this proactive world. And that was really the genesis. Okay, how do we get in front of it? How do we find these things before they occur? How do we make it so when they occur, nobody knows that they occur? So for someone who doesn't have a background in chaos engineering and haven't played with this, what's the starting point? What would be some of the, the first things somebody should do if they say, firstly, let's even like scope and scale this. If it's just me and a buddy working on a Rails app or a Django app, is this something I should be thinking about? Like, what's the number of engineers? Is it when you move to microservices? What's the baseline that it actually makes sense to start to think about chaos engineering? I think like any good engineering, you should mentally think through the things that can go wrong. If you make a network call, if you have a, a reliance on a third-party API or a dependency, if you're storing things in S3 or some bucket, if you have something that's outside of your control that could go wrong, Murphy's Law says that it can and it will. So what are you going to do to prepare for that? Now, at its root, this is a, it's a risk trade-off. Think of it like insurance. It's, it's a, how much effort do we want to put in? How much gain do we get? If you're a two-person you know, team working on a Rails website that gets you know, 10 viewers or 100 viewers a day, pr probably don't spend all of your time on chaos engineering. You know? But what's the 80-20? Well, before you launch, before you go live, before you push out a new build, Make sure that you can handle the silly failures. If CPU spikes, if a disk fills up, if a host reboots, none of those should break your application and should take you, you know, 10 or 20 minutes to go test. Kind of the next step up is, all right, I've got a team of five or 10. We're responsible for a service. Maybe we're a small, mid-sized business. You know, again, are your customers going to leave if things fail? Are you going to lose money if something breaks and it doesn't work? You know, those are your, how you weigh the cost associated. How much time should your team put in? I would say for, for teams that are just starting out, you know, if you can spend a couple hours a month, you're probably going to get a good return on investment for that. You're going to be able to test these basic failure modes. And, and what's going to happen is you're not going to get paged on a Friday night or a Tuesday morning or whenever it happens and have to spend that same two to three to four hours digging through logs, fixing things, pushing out another build. And so in the end, that's that's the time savings. And then once you get to being like an enterprise company, a larger company, or more mature, that's probably where you want it weekly. You want to be doing exercises with your teams so they're building muscle memory and they're staying fresh. You really want to move it into your build and deploy pipeline. Just like other good testing, if it's being run for you, then you know it's being exercised, you have that protection and you can focus on finding new things. Oh, interesting. So you can actually build the capabilities into your pipeline so that it will actually pull things down and then see if a certain suite of tests pass, for example. Yeah. Got it. And then what is the starting point for this? So let's say, for example, okay, so I've got a dependency on S3. I'm persisting images there, and I'm also retrieving them. How do you start to think about, well, if that goes down, I mean, does that mean you need to 
replicate every image right to different availability regions? I mean, how, how do you start to think about ensuring that you don't get downtime? And is the goal to keep 100% functionality or to degrade gracefully? So, well, the images don't show up, but at least you can still check out. Yeah, so I'm a big fan of graceful degradation wherever possible. If something is non-critical and it can go away and the user can do the critical thing that matters, by all means, we should do that. How do you go about it? You know, I think there's a couple of ways. One is a whiteboard exercise. You know, draw out your service diagram and your dependencies and talk about as a team what would happen if that failed. And that's really where we're coming up with these hypotheses. So let's take a step back. What is chaos engineering at its root? Chaos engineering at its root is not let's go randomly break things and hope we learn something. That's an ad hoc methodology. It's we're, we're applying the scientific approach. We have a hypothesis. We're going to go run experiments that either help us validate that hypothesis or disprove it. We're going to do these experiments in a thoughtful, safe way. We're not going to go out and run it in production at 100% and just put our users at risk. That would be foolhardy. So we're going to start by running on a single host of 1% of users, the smallest possible number. We call this the blast radius. When we run an experiment, who could be impacted? And can we learn some? What's the smallest experiment we can learn from? So if we can run it against one host in staging and find a, a potential production outage, that's just great engineering. You know, we found it, we fix it, we win. And so when we start, we'll run these small experiments. And if it works correctly, then we'll run a bigger experiment. So we'll go from one host to 10 hosts to 100 hosts. Maybe we'll go through all of staging. If staging works exactly how we want it to, now we have the comfort and the confidence to go to production, but we'll start very small. We'll go run on a single host. We'll run against a single user. If that fails, we're done. We call, we clean it up, we go fix the problem. If it works the way we expect, we continue to grow it until we test it at large scale. And now some exclusive offers for my partners. Amazon Web Services offers a broad set of global cloud-based products to equip technology leaders to build better and more powerful solutions. Partnering with CTO Connection, AWS is now offering an exclusive program to our listeners. The program includes up to $100,000 of AWS credits, a free consulting session with an AWS solution architect to review your environment, your strategies, and optimize your costs, and other resources to help you to get started on migrating to AWS. If you're interested in learning more, please reach out to aws-cto-program at amazon.com. To lend a hand to those ramping up remote engineering processes, Code Climate is offering the CTO Connection community 45 days of full access to their engineering analytics application, no strings attached. Velocity turns SCM data into actionable insights so leaders can get visibility into the speed, capacity, and output of their newly distributed teams. Your 45-day package will include access to the full capabilities of the Velocity Professional Package, a consultation with a product specialist who will map your key initiatives to data, and a training session for engineering managers and executives about how to interpret and apply this data in a way that engenders trust. CodeClimate hopes that this will equip engineering leadership to take on a new set of challenges in the weeks ahead. To request access, head to codeclimate.com slash CTO Connection and use the code CTO Connection. And to be clear, these uh, tests that you're running, it's literally something along the lines of, we're going to switch off this web service, we're going to switch off this API, we're going to switch off this thing you depend upon and see what happens to the user's ability to complete their tasks. Yeah. So as you asked, you know, what are some of the types of things you should prepare for? 
you know, again, there's like, I have a memory leak or I have a process that runs unbounded that takes up CPU. Those might be some basic ones. Maybe I've got a process that dies. How many engineers have a cron babysit that restarts a process if it goes down? All of us somewhere at some time. Does it work? Well, let's test it. Um, those are kind of your base state. You know, your next level up, what happens if time changes on the box? Daylight savings, a leap second, uh, certificate expiry. There's a, there's a variety of things there. And then you go up a step further. What happens when the network fails? And I think that's the most interesting one with the distributed systems we're building because everything, you know, we're making all of these calls across the network. And when you make a call across the network, one of two things happen. It never returns or it returns after some period of time. And at some point we might just give up waiting and we don't really know what's happening on the other end of that network connection. That server could be down. It could be under load. It could be perfectly healthy. And we don't control it. So there's not a lot we can do if it is down or slow or unhealthy. And so all we can do is we can test if those things were to happen, what would our response be? And are you? do you notice when you see the people who are doing this, especially in companies that aren't at the scale of Amazon and Netflix, is it primarily people with more complex architectures with microservices or are people potentially doing this against a monolith and just looking at the third-party dependencies as well? Well, it's in, in, in part, it's vernacular because we've been doing disaster recovery testing for a very long time. We've been doing negative testing and infrastructure testing. These aren't actually new ideas, but the idea of building it into a service, making it programmatic, automating it, that's really the iteration. So yeah, you know, if you have a monolith and you have a database and you're backing up your database, have you restored it? Have you tested that failover? You have an OLTP warehouse set up, you know, undoubtedly you've had delays and like data propagation issues. Those are the same things. But I would say in the, in the modern systems where everything is distributed and everything is changing often, that's the other piece of this is rate of change. You know, if things are changing once a quarter, you could test it on those those release bounds. But if everything is changing every day or every other thing is changing every day, how you respond and how you keep up to date becomes a big problem. Do you also notice it seems like one of the challenges with microservices is it fundamentally increases the complexity and, and the likelihood that something's going to break, right? Hey, good news. We're running a thousand distributed services, which all 100% depend on the other 999 being up. Great, your mean time between failures just gone down three orders of magnitude, right? Suddenly stuff's gonna break all the time because boxes fail. How do you fundamentally I'm just nodding my head here <laughs> for those listening? Just nod. It's like how do you fundamentally deal with that? How do you deal with a world where you're making it likely that stuff's gonna break a lot? I mean, all of engineering is trade-offs. And one of the trade-offs that we've made in the last 10 years is to make teams more efficient by letting them move quicker. And moving quicker is a competitive advantage. And I wouldn't give that up. And I think many companies wouldn't give that up. But how do you, how do you handle that trade-off? It comes with complexity. It comes with increased failure. And it comes with just this, this difficulty. I think this is why we've seen the rise of SRE over the last five years, because SRE is needed. Can someone come in and make sense of this? Can someone come in and help us get us under control? Hey, have you ever been on call? You're a smart engineer. You're on call now. It's your problem. Go figure it out. And that's, you know, at its, at its heart, that's how it was born. 
So I think, you know, I think as all things, there's a bit of a pendulum. Uh, we've swung to the world of, you know, it's the the client server pendulum that's happened, you know, how many times now? Three or four times over right. the last 50, 60 years. And we're in the very distributed client model. And we're gonna we're gonna swing it back a little bit. It makes it'll make some sense to consolidate some things and to simplify some things. But I, the cat's out of the bag. I don't think I don't think the world is gonna swing all the way back. And so we're going to be dealing with this world of moving quickly and distributed systems from here on out. Just to to think about it. So if somebody's new to this, how do you start to think about mitigation? So for example, you've got a service that somebody uses, uh, but you, you depend upon the user authentication service to determine who is this person? What are their permissions? What do you do if you don't if the user authentication service is down? It feels like it, you're, you're. It feels like some of these are fundamentally constrained. It's kind of like, oh, good news, I, I'm working on chaos engineering, but bad news, what do I do when the database fails and everything's persisted in the database? How do you, how do you think about those things? Yeah, it's funny. I've thought about that one in particular. Uh, one of the companies I work for, the identity service, had multiple multiple outages, and it was a huge pain point. Look, the very bottom of your question is some things cannot fail. Some things need to work or we can't get business done. But a step up, like let's take identity. So maybe you have a cookie. Maybe the cookie is encrypted or signed in a way that if you can't access the service and you have a cookie with a timestamp that's, I don't know, less than two minutes old, maybe you're comfortable using that cookie until that service is back up. Uh, one common pattern I've seen is a cache in front of the service where if the service itself goes down or is under load, the cache is able to do it. Now, you actually have the opposite problem when you follow that pattern that when the cache goes down, the service has no chance of keeping up and has to auto scale quickly or <laughs> or be running very, very cold, uh, running with a lot of extra storage to handle that capacity. Or I guess the other thing is that you could just make it a, a, a failover to the cache, right? Although I guess that there then becomes an efficiency trade-off. I wonder if there is, it's funny because the whole COVID thing, people have been talking about efficiency and resilience. And I think about it in supply chains. And on the one hand, everyone's like, oh, you know, in the future, we're going to have local supply chains and more inventory and stuff. I'm like, no, we're not. In five or 10 years, we're going to forget about the whole darn thing. And the companies that are more efficient are going to outcompete the ones that are more resilient. How do you think about this? So, I mean, I was thinking about the cash thing because the uh, the resilient way to go might just be to have a warm cash sitting there that you don't actually read from most of the time. And you'd have to have like the ability to test against that. But of course, that's way less efficient because now you are still making all the network calls. You've got the extra latency and you've got the load in another set of servers, which you could have saved by just using the cash. How would you advise people to think about that kind of trade-off between efficiency and resilience? Because even building in a caching layer, it's more code to write, it's more tests to write, it's more stuff that can break. I found that the the pendulum swings between performance, efficiency, and availability. Uh, availability is fundamentally about redundancy, redundancy in systems, in regions, in databases, in places of truth. So how do you handle the you know cache miss? Well, you have a whole separate region. You run active active, maybe you have four separate regions and you run with a 10% overhead in each one so that you're getting as much efficiency as possible, but so that if one fails, you can distribute the load and, and spike a little without taking everything out. 
but we saw this. We saw this where, uh, you know, I saw this personally at Amazon. Well, every year I was there, I saw a different focus. And one year was availability. And it was redundancy everywhere, no matter the cost. Spend the time and effort. Let's proactively prepare. And then the next year it was performance. And it was how do we make things as fast as possible? And, you know, let's pull things out and let's, uh, let's unroll these loops and let's start doing things in parallel. And even though it's more computationally expensive, it's quicker. Let's get it done. And then I saw a year that was efficiency and it was how much money are you spending on this? Are you joking me? Like go cut that in half. And I think the truth is these are, these are again, back to the trade-offs. These are all fundamental engineering concerns that will never change. We have to write efficient, performant, available, resilient software. And what that means for you and your company is, you know, what helps your company and your business survive what makes your customers happy, and what helps your engineers remain productive. I remember seeing uh, Dylan Richard give a talk at a CTO or something like back in 2014 about some of the stuff like this that he'd done with Obama for America. And he was talking about some of the things they'd done where it's like, well, look, if the commerce fails over, at least you can have the website up. And if this fails over, at least you can have... So, So do you look at um, like critical subsets of capabilities and then basically set effective. Do you set SLAs on a feature rather than a system level then where it's like the important thing isn't which APIs are up, but it's that enough of them are up to buy something. And that's going to be six nines, but to show you your customer information, maybe that's only four nines. I mean, is that how you think about it? Well, the truth is, uh, if we if we knew everything that was critical up front, we could just do the work and and we would know. But most people don't know all of the critical services because things are moving so quickly. Someone might have mistakenly made themselves a critical dependency or inserted themselves on the critical path. And so we actually did some interesting work again back at Netflix to one identify all of the critical services, and we did that by we use chaos engineering. We built a, we had an automated test pipeline and it would log in, browse, pick a movie, auth- you know, authenticate, log in, browse, pick a movie and stream. And then what we did is we whitelisted all of the critical services or the ones we thought and we failed all other traffic. And then we ran that test. And it took us a month to sort out all of the things that we weren't aware of that were in there and to have the discussions and make the decisions. Hey, do you want to be a critical dependency? Because if you're tier one, we expect four nines and a five minute SLA on getting on calls. And if you're tier two, you know, three nines and like just fail and get out of the way and nobody cares, you know, we'll fix it during the daytime. And so that, that really understanding what is critical and uncovering it and making the decision. Once you do that, yeah, I think it's, it makes sense to invest heavily in the most critical services so that the core business flows stay up. And that's ultimately SLAs and SLOs are intermediate factors. You know, they're, they're contributing metrics. The metric that matters is what the customer's doing. It was, can they order at Amazon? It was, can they stream at Netflix? Every business has one or two. Can you do the thing that you're paying us money for? Great. That's what matters. That's great. So you've shared a lot of great advice and information. Is there anything we, we haven't covered? Are there any other like hints and tips that you would share with somebody who's starting to think about, oh, wow. My engineers are on call a lot of the time and getting called out. How can I start to get this under control? Yeah, the way I think of it, it's the tip of the iceberg. Like everyone has is, is got this simplified view of the world. Like, oh, I've just got my code. 
you know, it doesn't matter the environment it runs in or the config or the network or the other running systems. I've got my team, we've got our feature list. Like that's what we're spending time on. And they're forgetting that when these things happen, their teams are wasting an immense amount of time. You know, the outage, the, the, the hour your team spent on the outage is not all of the time that was lost. They lost productivity the next day. They had to go dig into logs. They had to go do the postmortem. They had to go fix the things they found. That 30 minute outage actually cost you a week's worth of developer time. Why aren't you investing in preventing that? Why don't you want to save that time so that they're happy and they get things done? That's my, that's my plea to the world. <laughs> Sounds like a pretty solid plea. Colton, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. My pleasure, Peter. Appreciate the opportunity. This episode was produced by the amazing team over at Dante32, a podcast production agency focusing on content strategy, audio production, and distribution. Check them out at Dante32.com. And if you'd like to receive new episodes as they're published, please subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps others to find the show. Thank you. Thank you.